I love double-sized comic books. I love double-sized uh, first issues, final issues, anniversary issues, second-to-last issues. What a treat. Live from the Talking Joe Studios. The last issues from him. An arc called Dawn of the Red Shadows. Brandon Joe was era's ending. A finale with the Red Shadows. Hey, 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 everybody. It's me, Dr. Mark, and welcome to another episode of Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast featuring three people being recorded in 2022, uh, mostly about Red Shadows. Um, So uh, I'd like to be specific. Um, if you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website. The website is talkingjoe.co.uk. Now we are continuing our look at the disavowed era of G.I. Joe with issue 42, Dawn of the Red Shadows, part one from Devil's Dew in May 2005. It is the penultimate issue from Brandon Jerwa's run. So digging into this... With me, as always, it's my co-host, it's a real American, Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. Hello, Tim. But before we start gabbling on too much, we've got a special guest with us today. It is friend of the show. You might know him from our... I know, Tim, you know you know his name anyway, but, but for the listeners, the listeners may know his name from the Golden Joes episodes that he has appeared on. It is Richard Straw. Hi, Richard. Hello, hello. Hello, Mr. Mark. Hello, Mr. Tim. Very pleased to be here and looking at this very strange issue of G.I. Joe. Ah, <laughs> we're, we're getting into it already. Richard, where, <laughs> where are you physically located at the time of recording? I am in my sister's house in the northeast of England because we are having a Halloween party. So uh, there's some interesting things going on in the house, but they promise not to bother me. Now, I haven't <laughs> been to England in several years, and I assume it's very small and everyone knows everyone and can get everywhere easily. Were you also at that show that uh, Mark attended a few days ago? No, I don't think I was. Well, no, I don't think I was. I wasn't. Um, would that be something at the opposite that end was, of the world? That was something in London. So, oh, good lord! That's that's like a million miles away. Yeah. So, so sort of. I guess the for the American audience, everything is kind of in relation to distance from London. Um, so, so how far are you north um, of London? Richard? Oh, lord! How far is Newcastle is Newcastle upon time. I mean, Bill Bryson once said that nowhere is actually very far from anywhere in Britain, but we are a good three hundred miles or something, which isn't anything at all, really, but feels like a huge amount when you're in the northeast of England. In England, anything over an hour is a long oh, way yes. away. And, Very long way. Oof. And and Mark, by comparison, how many hundreds of miles are you from London? Uh, I am between... I'm about an hour and a half drive from London. Okay. And, and there was some G.I. Joe stuff to look at. At What was the show called? Uh, it was MCM. But by the time this comes out, that would have been ages ago. Well, then let's skip it. You saw some toys. Toys that people have already <laughs> seen pictures of on the internet. All right, good. Issue 42, Devil's Do. So, uh, Richard, I I don't know if we talk too much about this on the Golden Joes episode, but, um, but, I mean, part of of the reason that we're doing this at at all, 
uh, talking about the Devil's Due era is because of the enthusiasm of people like you who who look back on this era with um, uh, with a great what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Nostalgia. I just look upon it with great affection. Affection. Thank you. Um, in a way that probably most fans do. So, what is it uh, about this particular era that that sort of that you in, you know enjoy and look back so fondly? I mean, I, 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 the thing that I said, I think at the time, and I'll say it again, was that I, I obviously came to GI Joe being being from the UK via the medium of Action Force. Um, Action Force is what GI Joe wishes it was. Um, and um, <laughs> wow, shots fired. We'd only really had sort of, we'd had quite a lot of Larry Harmer's comics, but I had only read them through the British reprints. And so there was no sense of a long continuity or any of that. Uh, and I came across a random comic in a, a comic shop I used to go to in around 2000 when it started. And it just reminded me of that. And to mm. me, this was G.I. Joe is the devil's due era, because that's the thing that I really read through and collected from the start. And I actually came to reading the Larry Harmer stuff as a proper run through much, much later. And so um, maybe I wasn't making any comparison. So to me, weaknesses, issues, all the sort of things that you've raised. Yeah, I can see what you mean about them. But to me, this was G.I. Joe when I was, uh, well, not when I was growing up, but when I was sort of rediscovering it back in the early 2000s. And uh, that nostalgia factor doesn't go away, even though I can acknowledge many things that have been said on, on the actual podcast about some of the interesting issues with the comics i still love them um it's not rational it's just that's what love is <laughs> makes perfect sense excellent uh tim do you have any sort of gen- general questions for for richard before we dig into it uh richard remind me just so i can triangulate um are you reading the uh, current IDW GI Joe that's wrapping up. Are you buying uh, classified action figures? I don't buy classified. I'm I'm an O-ring purist. Um, that sounds dreadful, but I am. I'm I'm very much of the old style, and the classified ones I've simply got no space for. They're lovely figures, but I've got no space for them. And I have been reading the IDW, the the Larry Harmer stuff that's obviously coming to an end soon. But actually, I've got stuck somewhere around the end of Snake Hunt. I frankly got a bit bored with it if i'm absolutely honest and actually i think things have improved massively since then so i'm going to try and do a massive catch-up but yes i was reading it uh, i just am very very much behind on it the uh that those self-contained issues that come right after yeah. snake hunt are a nice change of pace well yeah i, I, I read those and, and i thought they were quite nice um i, I think that's where his strength larry Harmon's strengths lie these days in those sort of small issues about individuals um but <laughs> Too many, not enough hours in the day. Let's put it that way. So I'm going to do a big catch up because I'm massively behind on listening to the podcasts that link to them as well. I have to confess. So a big catch up, basically, due. And you you said vintage uh, O ring, but but mm. I'm guessing there's as well that you're a big fan of the like five point of oh, articulation yeah. Palatoy era. Yeah, I specifically collect 1982 to 1987 Action Force. So um, that's a very very specific. Um, set of stuff from the old five points uh, of articulation stuff that Palatoy released through to the G.I. Joes that were specifically released under the Action Force banner, which means some very nice characters like Low Light and Chuckles, which weren't released in the original, I, I don't have because I'm trying to be a purist about it. Wow. So the likes of Covergirl, Spirits, no, they're, they, they they're don't to exist. you. <laughs> Tun Up was the Wolverine driver. 
Right. So we've got r- rock and roll. Um, so Turn Up was the uh, the UK release of uh, rock and roll. The only one we yeah. got in uh, as a as a Wolverine driver. Um, and on a scale of one to ten, how excited are you about Super Seven releasing a five point of articulation red laser? <laughs> it's kind of weird because obviously that's actually a step back from the red laser we've got. But to see an official figure on card, oh, eleven on the scale of one to ten, <laughs> I couldn't get my wife to understand why this excited me—the idea of an official carded action force red shadow figure. Uh, I actually collect the Super 7 Transformers. I've been avoiding the G.I. Joes, but uh, I'm going to break my habit on this one, definitely. Cool. Shall we get into uh, Devil's Due issue 42 then? Yeah. We're going to talk about coming from Devil's Due. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh. So creative team were story Brandon Jerwa, pencils Tim Seeley for parts one, pages one to twenty-two, and Emiliano Santalucia. Page 23 to 44, which is part two. Inks, Corey Hampshire. Colouring, Brett R. Smith. Lettering, Steve Seeley. Uh, presumably related to uh, Tim Seeley. Editor, Mark Powers. Associate editor, Mike O'Sullivan. Graphic design, Mike Norton. Production assistants, Sean Dove. And military consultation, Andrew Swenson. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Tim, tell us all about what's happening on the front of this here book. All right, so uh, the cover is penciled by Tim Seeley and inked by Andrew Pepoy and colored by Val Staples. And uh, at the top, it says, The Beginning of the End. And then there's a a title under the G.I. Joe logo type, Dawn of the Red Shadows, Part 1. And in the distance, we can see a small full figure wearing an overcoat uh, holding two weapons. This person is backlit, so they're all in shadow, and they are casting a shadow toward us. Behind them is a flame, which I have to say doesn't quite read as a flame because um, all the black outlines have been replaced with white outlines, which is a a coloring trick that computer colorists in comic books in the late 90s and early 2000s were sort of getting into. And so the, the fire to me looks, it does look like fire, but it, some, from far away, it just sort of looks like sunrise or sunset. Anyway, on this arid, harsh ground, barren and dry all around this this figure are uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, about 10 Joes, and they're all... Uh, lying down on the ground, splayed out, eyes closed, weaponless, maybe asleep or unconscious or dead. And the cover, this is not a cover swipe, but the cover does to me recall the uh, Alan Davis, Paul Neary promotional art from the 1980s for uh, the X-Men Fall of the Mutants storyline, which was several chapters in. Uh, the X-Men books and some related uh, Marvel books. And uh, there's there are three versions of that piece. There's the 
original that had the original colors printed as an interior ad and then there's the like glossy version that's now the cover of a of an omnibus where uh it's got like the photoshop recreation of the original colors and then there's an omnibus which is a modern colorist with like rendering and painting like redoing uh the colors not in a limited palette so when i and when i when i saw this cover years ago i thought oh it's like the it's like the fall of the mutants image with a bunch of dead X-Men from close up to the camera, moving back into the distance, just X-Men unconscious or dead strewn across the ground and each other. Notably uh, in the foreground are um, Flint and Lady J. Those those are the two closest characters, but uh, Firewall is also there. Is this this Firewall or Damon? Who who died? (laughs) Damon died. Damon died. This is Firewall. Thank you. It's sort of a different cover for Devil's Due. Um, it, it does ask a question, and the issue does sort of answer the question, right? Who's this, who's this mysterious guy? And it is also an exaggeration because some of these Joes aren't in the issue, and not all of these Joes are asleep or unconscious or dead in the issue. But I think the, I think the pose on this mysterious shadowed figure in the distance is too um, straight up and down. Um, two sort of reads as flat like this doesn't read like a hole in the page like like a little black dot that you just sort of fall into but i would like a little more sort of difference between you know left side of the pose or right side of the pose or a little twist to the spine or you know one arm up one arm down but in general i i I like the cover It, it feels like a like an older fashioned um comic book cover and it is not the style of the you know, 2000, what is this, 2004? Where, where are we? We're into 2005 now. 2005, right. This is not the like 2005 Marvel covers, which are just like a pinup of Spider-Man or a pinup of Wolverine or a pinup of Storm or a pinup of Iceman. Hmm. So now that we know what is happening on the cover, let's get onto the interiors and discover what happened in a Plot Breakdown with our special guest announcer, Richard Straw. Cobra have apparently been defeated, but a new enemy has appeared and one of the first victims is Joe Colton. He leaves a message for the team telling of his association with British agent Wilder Vaughan, who turned against the governments of the West and who is now in charge of a new terrorist organisation known as the Red Shadows. Colton found a connection between the Red Shadows and the deaths of several G.I. Joe operatives and reporter Hector Ramirez. At the Pentagon, the jugglers find themselves countered by Deputy Director Medina and then confronted by General Mars Haring, who is revealed as a secret plant of the Shadows and guns them all down. The Joes are reunited with the returning Snake Eyes, Scarlet and Duke, just in time to join Kamakura in saving the wheelchair-bound Hawk from a Red Shadows attack led by Arthur Kulik, an attack in which the shadows are shown to be resistant to bullets. As red shadow attacks continue around the world, Duke and Flint interrogate a bomb maker in New Jersey who may have produced explosives for the shadows. They are interrupted by shadows agent Della Eden, who kills the bomb maker and then escapes. However, footage from the attack gives the Joe team a new clue, linking the bomb maker to a company known as Eclipsey Holdings. As the investigation continues, Mars Haring turns up at the Joe's offices and secretly sabotages their computers. Meanwhile, there's tension in the Flint household as Warrant Officer and Lady J butt heads over the subject of General Ray. J can find nothing on the General's background and doesn't trust him, but Flint disagrees. 
As Flint storms out of the house, he drops another bombshell. He's intending to quit the team for good. Later, Flint comes under attack from a car driven by Della Eden. Driven off the road and badly injured, he's rescued by Lady J, and the two have a tender reconciliation amidst the wreckage. But just as she is going for help, Jay is stabbed through the stomach by Della Eden and apparently killed. Coming soon, the end of G.I. Joe as you know it. Dun, dun, dun. Very well done. Well, I done read a heck of a lot of comics. Some of them are great, the team are all on it, but some are a bit cack. They really are whack. Before the nitpicks come out, I'm giving it my bestest, and nothing's gonna stop me from trying to be positive, so I'll pause my scorn to put up two thumbs and turn my frown upside down. Take advice, it cannot wait. Say something nice. As, as is our new tradition, we'll try and start by saying something nice about the issue. Maybe I'll go first because my, my say something nice is probably a smaller list. I'll say my, my thing that I'll say is that when this was coming out originally, I was my immediate reaction was Red Shadows, cool. As an Action Force reader, I was very excited to see the Red Shadows return to a modern era of G.I. Joe. So I had quite uh, high expectations for this story as a result going in. I might leave it there for the moment. Richard, do you want to step in with um, with your big positive for the, for this issue? I mean, my big positive, and it's related in a way, is the fact that Whilst G.I. Joe and Cobra are utterly intertwined, I wouldn't expect them to be away for long, I am really, really pleased to see them actually fighting something other than Cobra. Mm. I think in the original comics, there's maybe two stories in that original Larry Harmer run. Uh, I can only think of two issues that don't have any significant Cobra presence. Um, That's just off the top of my head. And I, I was just, obviously, as a British reader, I was very excited by the idea of the Red Shadows. But just to have them do something different, successfully or not, that was really good. I was just really pleased to see them trying something different. Tim? Well, it's cool that um, Emiliano uh, Santa Lucia is back uh, because his facial expressions and his poses and his acting are stronger than Seeley, right? His, His perspective, like drawing characters in space, foreground, middle ground, background is strong and uh he can draw some different faces faces that are different from each other and so the 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 second half of the issue has the sort of visual pep that i've always wanted the devil's do series to have and uh it's nice that he's back okay honestly speaking i found i found this issue slightly hard going and it's difficult to put my finger on exactly why that that was that's not that i was reading it with a a scowl and and 
not enjoying it. It's just, it, it, it felt like a little bit harder work than normal to, to sort of get through. I guess it's quite exposition heavy. There's quite a lot of captions, dialogue. If you sort of you know, flick through any given page, there's, there's a, uh, some of these, these pages are very heavy on the, on the dialogue. Possibly part of it as well is, is that it looks like maybe this two issue run of two oversized issues or double sized issues could have been originally planned as being just four standard issues because it is literally 22 pages times four to get to, to, to two issues with two parts per, per issue. Seely is doing half, uh, you know, 22 pages and Santa Lucia is doing 22 pages. So possibly that makes it feel a bit strange that maybe maybe this wasn't envisioned as a single like issue in itself but kind of two two issues rammed together yeah i mean the Celie's final page where one of the red shadows is saying uh why arthur i think it was i, I oh he's british uh why arthur why arthur i think he was obvious devoid and quonka my friend devoid and quonka this is a brooklyn british guy um, and and, <laughs> and it ends with this close up on the computer screen of Flint separately and Lady J, and that does feel like a dun dun mm. dun final moment of an issue, and then the first panel of the next page where it's now the second half of the issue, and the next the other artist picks up, it says chapter two, and the scene feels like. It, yes, could have been the first page of the next issue, right? So I contacted MI5 again as per your quest. And strangely enough, uh, here's a little, it's not its not so expositional, but it's, uh, it, it is expositional. It, it's not hitting me over the head with stuff I know from earlier in this very issue, but it does feel like something that lately might call back to uh, an issue published a month earlier. Hmm. Yeah. I think I think in a very, my, my sort of top down, and I, and I don't know if I can say this, I can't say this um, affirmatively until the next issue, but my top down two reactions are, and this often happens with a final issue and a second to last issue. This feels uh, rushed in that there's a lot of characters and story to, and, and sort of big things happening. You know, someone dies or someone betrays someone or someone's revealed a lot of this is happening in this issue, even though it's a double-sized issue, and that you know that happens in in final issues, particularly when a series ends before the writer sort of you know thought it might. And secondly, I think what I'm seeing here is this is a suggestion that Brandon Jurwa, rather than taking the story that he was trying to do, and shortening it a little bit and simplifying it a little bit and squeezing it into four issues worth uh, at the end. I think if I were Jurwa with a time machine, I would write a different final story that it would not be the Red Shadows or it would not be this version of the Red Shadows. And maybe the Red Shadows would show up, but they wouldn't be the full adversary. And I would sort of refocus this back on on the, the the important beloved characters in G.I. Joe and Cobra with that sort of hope, if this is me as Jirawa with a time travel machine, that maybe I can come back to this in a few years and pick up a thread if, you know, the next writer hasn't like trashed the place. 
Because I think what's starting to happen here is this compromise, which is a story that is caught between two things. What Jerwo had been planning on and how much space he actually has. Mm. And this is not a train wreck. I don't like hate this issue. When when the Joes nuked Cobra Island, um, I really didn't like that. It it didn't it wasn't built up in a way that was realistic, finger quotes realistic or satisfying. I don't think people reacted to it in the right way. There wasn't any uh, no pun intended fallout. Although there is a line <laughs> in here that refers to it. Um, but this issue, I thought, like there's a lot of exposition and dialogue and in um, sort of. TV newscaster voiceover. I didn't find this issue like emotionally uh, super satisfying. The action was like okay. I thought it was sort of like tepid and fine, but like nothing about it was terrible. Which I, I, you know that that sounds mean, but like it's not a faulty comic book. It's just sort of like well that didn't that didn't like do anything for me, but like it does tell a story, and there are some character beats. Again, this sounds this sounds mean. It's like, well, it's not my least favorite issue of Devil's Do. It's like I dislike issues one and two and three and four. I dislike those intensely. This is like, well, it didn't work, but they're trying. And maybe I'm sort of relieved that it. Now I'm starting to damn by faint praise. Like, thank goodness it's over. Um, let me let me hand the mic back to you guys because I think both <laughs> of you because because um, Richard, you said something at the beginning. Uh, used a word or a phrase. Both of you used a word or a phrase that sort of surprised me because I know that you have both been more in favor of Devil's Due stories and art than I have been. I was going to say, I think you knocked it, the, the nail the nail on the head, and it was probably the thought that I was trying to to reach is that there. I think there was an ambition for this story which was curtailed and in, instead of trying to massively rethink a, an ending for this era for these final issues to, to close it out um it was a kind of a, a compression probably of the of the existing of the existing idea and that and that ambition of creating this brand new enemy force and then resolving that entirely within the space of two issues is is uh something that's very hard to achieve and, and i think that is probably the um the uphill battle that was being being fought as, as these issues were being produced not to go too far ahead on my opinions on this but uh, the, the biggest thing i have with it really I, I think the word i used at the beginning was weird <clears throat> i mean i don't know what did brandon I, i'm not really familiar with the background but um did brandon joe know that basically this was it and he wasn't coming back when they rebooted the series um because um yeah there's just so much packed in uh, not always. I generally don't have a problem understanding what's going on in the comics. I think there's been some confusion in the past, and sometimes there has been sort of things that I thought didn't quite make sense. This one, I have struggled following it from page to page at times, because there's so much text. You, you'd already mentioned the, the sheer quantity mm. of uh, word balloons. There's one page in the early on in the briefing scene where you're almost losing the art because of the sheer quantity of um, word balloons on there. Uh, I just wonder how much Brandon Joe knew about what was going to happen going forward because the biggest problem I have with this story and to jump ahead to the next issue um, not only very slightly is that 
they resolve the Red Shadow story that could quite easily have never come back at the end of the next issue. And it just seems to be an enormous amount of material being compressed into, even at double mm. length, a tiny mm. amount of space. Um, it's something you said about the very first issues, um, that very first arc, which, to be honest with you, I didn't entirely agree with. I thought that was all right, just all right in terms of the pace. But in this, I don't know what it is. There just seems to be so many things going on and it, it all ends up a bit weird is the only word I can come up with. You know, I will defend Devil's Due to the end of time. And, and this is not bad at all in any way. And there are lots and lots of things I like in it. But goodness me, it is very strange in places, um, <laughs> which, which is fine. I don't mind it being a bit strange, a bit different. But um, I'm not quite sure it's really what you'd want for the grand finale of a uh, three and a bit years comic run, mm. quite honestly. My understanding of, of what happened is that, um, you know, Brandon was expecting to be doing this for, for a long time and sort of set out his kind of long term roadmap of, you know, where the story might go over time, sort of trying to plan things things out. Uh, and then he was told that the book would be ending and, and relaunched with a new writer and I think, I believe, you know, given the chance to kind of wrap things up, um, I don't know how, how quite how long that, that notice was, um, but, but I, I suspect that this, this was the kind of the compressing of, of an, you know, a, an idea or a storyline that, that you're probably falling in love with into a, a shorter space than it deserved and, and probably needed. Uh, hopefully we can get to speak to to Brandon um, to kind of wrap up, um, have a wrap up discussion of his era and find out a little bit more about how, how things finished and, and what that meant for um, for his approach. So taking taking what we've just said, right? It's a, a lot more story that's crunched down into four issues. There is so much finality to this. So the jugglers are exposed, and they're assassinated. And Herring is revealed as a red shadow, as a villain. And the Joes who have been sort of separated or reunited. Uh, and specifically, there's some making of peace with General Ray. And the red shadows, or at least one of them, that the head guy gets an origin. And there's material showing Flint and Lady J not having a good time so that when she's stabbed on the final page, it, it hurts more. And there's this two page, these two pages of exposition where the, a bunch of newscasters are telling us of terrorist attacks all around the world uh, in, in various um, fictional countries. I haven't read the next issue, but you know, Richard just hinted that, the Red Shadows storyline is sort of completed with the next issue, the final issue. And here's an alternate take with my, you know, time travel magic wand. Don't have all the jugglers exposed and assassinated. Leave Herring in place. Or maybe the only thing that happens in this story is rather than like the five things or the six things that I just rattled, just pick two. So the jugglers aren't exposed and they're not assassinated. Herring just reveals himself. And maybe the the sort of the, the trio, the head trio, the, the the guy with the gray goatee, the head red shadow, and the bald white Russian guy, and the bald black uh woman, like they don't do as much in this story. And yes, you you sort of leave the reader thinking, oh man, I really like these characters. 
They're so dangerous, and they seem to have such interesting backstories. I wish there were a couple more issues. And then you sort of you sort of pretend that like Jerwa can come back one day in a year, in 10 years, or the next writer will pick this up and maybe well or not continue the story. You know, this kind of thing happened all the time at Marvel, where a writer on a book for, who was on a book for a while would start to plant seeds for a big character turn or a revelation or an origin. And they would leave the book on purpose or get fired. And then a, a later writer would just sort of do their own take on what might have happened next. And sometimes that got messy. And then sort of a later writer has to clean it up. This happens all over Avengers and X-Men. What, what would, it, would, it would make me more sad if I was really enjoying this book at the time to get to issue 42 and only sort of be teased by two or three of these Red Shadows characters, but know that one of them was particularly... Uh, dangerous and well-placed. And I'm going to slightly change tack here. My other thought is I'm so used to in the larger soap opera of Larry Hama's G.I. Joe that a lot of characters' pasts overlap. Not all of them. You know, by volume, it's not. There are hundreds of Joes and Cobras and, you know, like sci-fi and like DJ and, you know, Tiger Force Ricondo, like they don't have any relationship to like Destro or the Baroness, but you know, like the core six or 10 characters, Cobra Commander, Snake Eyes, his sister, etc. And yet here is this three page flashback at the beginning of this issue. And surprisingly, it doesn't connect to anyone. Even someone sort of off to the side, like, oh, Scrap Iron was on that team. Like that sort of was in Vietnam and or whatever this is, if it's not Vietnam. And you know, like he didn't stay on to become a proto Red Shadow and then an actual Red Shadow. But there could be one scene where he says to Cobra Commander, oh, I think I know who this guy is. And that that's a little bit of a of a shortcut, sort of like emotionally. It's like, then we know that there's a connection as opposed to just sort of the raw intelligence of Lady Jane Flint and Ray and maybe also Duke, like in in headquarters, just like talking about the intel that they've gathered. It's a narration from a dead Joe Colton that's revealing it. So it's a kind of connection back to the Joes, uh, albeit that he's no longer there. Uh, what is, yeah, but Colton isn't... Colton's oh. the guy with the beard that isn't Waldevorn. Oh, oh. Well, egg on my face. He's one of my favourite characters from Lord of the Rings. Egg on my face. <laughs> no, no, it's... <laughs> From, no, from Game of Thrones, egg on my face. Okay, all right. So on the, in the very first panel, the bad guy's on the left, Colton's on the right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, hmm. uh, from a from a writing standpoint, uh, that is that is better, and uh, and maybe it sort of hurts even more because Colton's not around to tell them this in person. But imagine if rather than the red shadows, there was the red shadow, and it's just this one guy in the flashback behind Colton in the first panel and not also the Russian guy with no hair and the black woman with no hair and maybe herring because he's already sort of been in place or maybe not. And maybe then you can't make it as big, you know, like two pages of terrorist attacks all over the world and also attacks on Joes and Cobras. Maybe it's half of those. It's not, it's not maybe wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't maybe be as big, but it would be 
idea and and when you were talking about all of those different parts of this story and it just feeling a little bit overloaded i was thinking possibly some of that global jeopardy stuff of all of these different terrorist ha- attacks happening all over the world some of that could be scaled right back down to a much cleaner plot where there's a you know a more singular idea and so some of the, some of the things that were trying you know trying to be got across like for example that joe colton link at the beginning might be more obvious one of the things that i still i don't know if, if the the next issue helps us understand it but one of the things i didn't still quite get was what was the clear link to all of those deaths that we've been seeing over the past few years and they've got some of those dead characters pinned up on the board um clearly the people killing those characters and that and that you know we now know where the red shadows but i don't know if the the why was particularly made clear i Richard? um i can already tell you it's one of the things that always gets me a bit confused and i've read these comics again and again over for the past 20 years or so and um they seem to be very, the Red Shadows seem to be very cross about Cobra fighting, fighting the Joes. And so I can understand why they might want to take out Cobra, which is kind of, they, they obviously have a talk about the sort of various things that they've unleashed in the last few issues. But the killing of the Joes, I, I've never entirely got why they're doing that. I mean, they talked about sending a message, um, when they killed Glenda and Rampart, um, and they'd already obviously killed Big Boa there. It's not at all clear what the message was. Um, the biggest problem I have with the shadows generally in this is it's not enormously clear what their entire plan is. But no, I'm afraid I have to say going forward, unless I'm missing something very obvious, the next issue doesn't make it any clearer either, quite honestly. <laughs> this is a bit unfortunate because um, the biggest problem I have with the shadows, like I say, is they're rather nebulous mm. plans, really, because they, they do. They, clearly Brandon Joa likes these characters. And he's put quite a lot of thought into creating, particularly Wilder Vaughan. And so I think that's why he wants to get them in there as often as possible, even if maybe it wasn't making an awful lot of logical sense to give them all these big, long scenes of Arthur Kulik painting and stuff like that. So he obviously likes the characters he's created, so he wants them in there. But the the trouble is it kind of... They do an awful lot of talking about stuff. Um, They don't really say what their final intentions are. And quite honestly, I don't think it's particularly clear at the end of the next issue either. I think they're trying to make them less obviously we are going to take over the world because we want to take over the world. They seem to have some sort of more idealistic thing gone wrong. But it's not very clear how the Joes come into that other than we're going to stop the Joes because if we don't, they'll stop us. But they kind of draw attention to themselves by doing that, (laughs) which is kind of counterproductive, really. Uh, But that's always a sort of what, what they call it, the idiot ball that the villains have to have at some point. Otherwise, the goodies won't win, basically. So um, what's happening on pages six and seven? Who is this who approaches the men? Is this is this a setup for one of the terrorist attacks that the news authorities are investigating? I'm on the next page. Authorities are investigating possible connections between the murder of those American doctors and the assassination of Almini's emir. And the previous two pages, the nighttime scene with the woman riding on a horse yeah, is the Almini Emirate. The woman on the horse is Della Eden, the red shadow uh, who normally wears the combat white fur coat. Um, so she's causing trouble. So I think this is kind of the web of terrorist attacks and things, chaos happening over the world. And for whatever reason, she is in the Al-Amini Emirate. 
sort of stoking dissent. So she's sort of ridden ahead of these US physicians on a state-sponsored medical pro- program, and she's so she's ridden ahead of them. Said said to the to to the village, the town that that their enemy US agents there to cause no good, you know, and and so stoke them up into a bit of rage, so that when they do arrive, they are killed, and and yeah, sort of stoking the global unrest uh, that uh, the assassin sorry the the red shadows want for some reason i just wonder if maybe i mean because we've only seen della literally is it two panels of the previous issue maybe i think you've already answered sort of whether she's easily recognizable i wonder if these two pages might have been better off later in the issue um i mean i suppose you can have a she is the woman of mystery causing trouble and then we learn but um you don't really know who she is, other than unless you were really paying attention in the last issue. And okay, she does rather dramatically appear to shoot Cobra Commander in the face, but um, <laughs> that's what it looks like. Um, yeah. But but I, I'm not sure everybody would join together who this character is. I mean, you know, it's a mystery and it's going to be solved within oh, ten pages or so. So I don't think it's terrible, but so, I don't think it's enormously clear either. I think so. Characters should be allowed to be in disguise or in civilian clothes. And her like red, her red shadows outfit, which is like very much a sexy comic book villain outfit. I mean, it 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 sort of laterally speaks to the Baroness's outfit, which is like a sexy comic book villain outfit that like we're all used to in GI Joe fandom. But it it, it is sort of subtly more sexy than like any other every other GI Joe costume. Anyway, so uh, what's the red shadows lady's name? Della Eden. Della Eden. So when she shows, when she has these two pages on horseback at night in the desert, so we see that she she has dark skin and red lipstick. And there is only one other character in this issue who has, who has dark skin and red, a, a woman who has dark skin and red lipstick. But the thing that really says to me who that this would be Della Eden would be that she has no hair and she has like, a version of her red costume or her or her actual sexy red costume. And so when comic book characters are out of costume, but they're wearing civilian clothes that are sort of that match the colors of their costume, if I get a visual link, that's that's fun. I appreciate that. And in context, like if she showed up in her normal costume, these men would be very upset because they are religious fanatics, conservatives, right? And uh, and they say, who are you, woman? Why are you not covered? Right. And, you know, he like only wants to see her eyes. So even the fact that she's showing her face is too much. So there is no logical story room for her to have something closer to her costume or her costume. But still, I didn't really know who this was. And so this these two pages um, stuck out to me. Uh let me let me hand the mic back to Mark because I think Mark has. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I've, I've got some like I've got two Tim Seeley things that I want to I want to pick at. So. so, so the big the big one for 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 this storyline for for me is is that initial excitement of ooh the red shadows and you know beforehand it's being trailed as a big thing it's it's you know the name of the arc the you know the dawn of the red shadows and, and as an Action Force fan that's very exciting. To me and, and so wait can a- you for the americans can you give us the short version who who are the red shadows why would a british fan be more excited so so in the 
British comics battle action force, the Red Shadows, were the main antagonist of the action force team. So the sort of proto GI Joe team that, that we had in the, the or the UK, UK equivalent version of GI Joe, and so so that was for the for the first span of issues. The main villain was uh, the Red Shadows, headed by the villainous uh, Baron Ironblood. The main big baddies. So the, the likes of us that were reading those comics at the time, you know, it was the equivalent of our Cobra. Uh, well, there was a there was a key storyline in the comics where they made the flip that Action Force was no longer going to be fighting the, the Red Shadows. It was going to be Cobra, and there was a storyline to to explain that 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 the leader of of the Red Shadows dissolved the Red Shadows organization and and transformed himself into Cobra Commander and was now leading a new organization called Cobra. Uh, story continues. So, so for for the likes of Richard and me, you know, the Red Shadows are a big deal as a, as a as a baddie. So when this story came out, and and we saw his Wilder Vaughn, he's this you know this mysterious villain. He's got white hair and a goatee. It's Baron Ironblood. No, yeah. it's not. It's this this other guy. And oh, it's the Red Shadows. They're these these baddies, you know, in in red. Uh, and they they're obviously going to have that iconic outfit of the mask and the skull and crossbones motif and, and you know that instantly iconic amazing design that they had from from um, the 80s oh no they've not done that it's just a blank red mask and and these guys in fairly nondescript long red red trench coats knowing what you know it's it's sort of some, for example, just seeing maybe you know your favorite superhero in the comics and their adventures, and then you see them translated onto screen, and instead of them using their costume, they're just in a t-shirt and a leather jacket or something, and it, it's it's you think oh, we had this iconic thing there yeah. just waiting to be used, and and you went a different direction, and uh, for for uh, particularly the people that knew the source material, a, a much less exciting direction. I mean, it's red shadows of the old ones, in name only. I mean, I am grateful at the very least that the lead character is British, <laughs> uh, which is obviously a nod of the head. <clears throat> um, I mean, I like these red shadows, and I think they're all right, but um, they are not the red shadows of the original run. I mean, obviously, Larry Harmer brought them back, and he was aware of the iconography, so we had things like the giant flying skull and things like that that was really what made them, whereas this, yeah, it's... It's kind of rather like a nebulous organisation that Brandon Jura has decided to add the Red Shadow's name to. That sounds awfully cynical. If only there had been one line of dialogue where one of them says something like, you know, we did our training in Britain, you know, and we, uh, but, you know, we, we cast off the, the, the founders of our organisation. You know, just, just a little something for, for the two of you. <laughs> Considering <laughs> how... Consider, considering how crowded, you know, this issue is, it's like, well, if one more line of dialogue wouldn't have, wouldn't have hurt. Speaking, well, while we're on the Red Shadow track and the British connection, um, Richard, did you have a point about that very British name that the leader of the Red Shadows has oh, got? Wild and Vaughan. Uh, we have been here before in the Icebound um, story where they, an Englishman was called Chuck, which I would never accept. Uh, <laughs> I, I am prepared to be corrected. I'll be happy to be corrected. But I have never heard of an Englishman whose first name, or a British person whose first name is Wilder. Um, that, that's, and I say this with no disrespect, uh, Mr. Finn, that, that's an American 
using an American name that I do not believe any British character would ever have. Um, it just it doesn't fit. It really just doesn't fit. I'm not sure I have ever heard of Wilder as an American first name, okay. in which case I would sort of s- send this back to you as, is Jirwa just making up a cool villain first name? I think that's you know, right. Like it turns out that Darth Vader, that, you know, Darth is sort of a title, sort of. But, you know, like back then in, in 1977, Darth was just five letters together that meant bad guy. Obi-Wan does use it as his first name. I, I think you're probably entirely correct. I mean, if only he called him John Shepherd or Marcus Castles, then uh, I might have been more excited because those are names that do feature in the original Action Force comic for two very prominent characters. Uh, Wilder Vaughn, I, I, li- I genuinely really like the character of Wilder Vaughn, but he doesn't feel very British to me, just whatever they, they're claiming. That's probably why MI5 and MI6 want to disown him and pretend he's dead. <laughs> I think he's obviously made the tip of the hat by making him British. But I have said, and I don't know if there's any real time to raise this, I have seen it written down that the three main characters of the Red Shadows are a sort of expi, I think the word is, of Cobra La. The Wilder Vaughan is Globulus, Della Eden is um, Pathona, and the Nemesis Enforcer is Articulic. And oh. it does make me wonder, and it does sort of fit, particularly with Della, Vaughan, Della Eden as the emissary, the sort of herald, it does make me wonder if he had something else in mind and the Red Shadows just got put over that as a template because they just decided Kobala was too mad even for Devil's are, Due. Richard, are you seeing a coincidence that these this trio lines up with Kobala, or do you, or, are you or someone suggesting that it may have been purposeful? I don't know. I mean, all I've seen is I have seen it written down. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's ever based on anything that anybody has ever said that they are based on just that feeling of the characters, um, just, just the, the look of them, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, but it's Galobulus who's. Yeah, I mean. He's well, the bald one here, whereas it's the big that's guy. True. <laughs> uh, I, but, I, I mean, Articulic is huge, like the Nemesis Enforcer, and the bald woman, okay, Pythona's not entirely bald, the bald woman who is the Herald is the um, is a sort of equivalent of Della Eden. Like I say, it is not my idea. I thought I would simply mention it. Hmm. It just makes me wonder. I think they did bring Paya Kobalar back, I think, in one of the Transformers crossovers, which makes a lot more sense. Um, I just wonder whether they'd wanted to do that, but maybe somebody had finally said, uh, no, no more connections to the cartoon series, please. And so they'd gone to this instead and maybe place this on top of a template for, for what they were supposed to be. The fact that there's environmental themes to what the Red Shadows are, are wanting to do also seems to sort of tie in with the Cobra idea of another world. It's just some speculation I, I've seen written down. Uh, like I say, not my idea. Uh, it just makes me wonder why maybe that's why some of it is so decidedly odd and doesn't fit the red shadows as anybody who knew the red shadows would 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 recognize simply because it's been lifted and placed on top of something in, as instead i'm going to shift gears a little bit here and and point out um to to brandon uh to tim seeley uh art decisions one is on page 8 where um it's the scene where the, the Red Shadows guy is uh, painting. And in the background, Wilder Vaughn is uh, watching eight TVs. And TVs are not square. TVs are not as wide as they are tall. 
Uh, I don't mean perfect squares with sharp right angle corners. I mean, these are squares with rounded corners. TVs are four by three. Like that is a, that's a well-known aspect ratio. And uh, this, this feels, it, this is a small thing that I'm, I'm nitpicking on, but it, it to me speaks of Seely's uh, um, lack of experience in like drawing uh, locations or perspective that are um, uh, believable. And then, oh, so, and then a couple pages later, the scene where uh, Miss Medina hands the bad news to uh, General Gibbs. So it's two pages and he's, he's sort of, he's upset. And he says to her, as much as I enjoy watching you dress up and play soldier, Miss Medina, you don't have the slightest understanding of a true soldier's concerns. I strongly suggest that, and she cuts him off and says, General, I strongly suggest you go break the news to your cronies in person before I have you put in a cell as well. And then someone off panel, I don't know who, says, is it inappropriate to thank you for that? And General Gibbs is walking somewhere, shaking huh. his fists, and there's a weird black shape behind him, which is technically background, but just reads as uh, like inking. And then, uh, possibly the Medina, suggestion of a door. Right. That's door. yes. This is this is what I'm getting to. So Gibbs leaves the scene, but I'm not clear on that because uh, Seely doesn't draw a proper doorway or like in the door in the doorway through the doorway where there's a hallway, and then on our side of the doorway where we're still in the room. Like I need to see him actually cross that threshold. I need to see one or two of the other characters in this like full body panel of him leaving. So then Medina's talking to Ray and I couldn't quite follow the first time that I read this page that Gibbs is leaving the room. And so I thought that she was still sort of talking to him. And when in the final panel, when she shakes Ray's hand, it is clear because of her complexion and her cuff and his complexion and his cuff. But what this, what this page needs is a three shot. We haven't seen all three of them together since early on the previous page. And Seely is, he, he, he can establish where characters are. Here he's not reestablishing where they are. And it's only a two page scene. So it doesn't like scream for it. It doesn't need it with a capital N. But considering that one of the characters leaves the scene, uh, it's not very clear. And I'm going to jump to, um, uh, was it five pages from the end? This is not a drawing thing. This is a like colorist thing where um, Herring is trying to buzz in to see Ray and Herring is on, he's looking up, I guess, at a security camera, right? Ray, Ray identifies himself, Ray. And then Herring says, uh, Ray, this is Herring. I'm sorry for the late hour, but I really like to speak to you. Of course, I'll meet you downstairs in a moment. And this is a pet peeve of mine. On that second, this is a right page if you're holding the comic. On that second to last panel, Ray is looking at a little like security monitor and the camera is not showing Herring looking up at the camera. The camera is showing a comp of the next panel, which is us seeing Herring from some arbitrary point of view that the artist picked not higher up and straight down what the camera would see. And you see this in advertising where 
like at my local CVS, there's a like a, a billboard in the window, or like a poster in the window, and it's like convenience savings. And there's like a picture of someone smiling with lemonade, and then like a picture of someone holding like some medicine, smiling, and then a picture of someone taking a picture with their phone. And you can see what they're taking uh, the picture with their phone because it's just a comp of the thing that's right next to them and behind their phone, but that's not the same angle. And that always bothers me. I am going to very kindly assume that Haring was uh, not. Yes, Haring wasn't looking directly at the camera because he wanted the camera to see his best side. <laughs> the only explanation I've got. I'd never noticed that until now, but yes. The thing that actually threw me off long before I realized there was too much talking and too many characters and too much story in the issue was uh, how poor the lettering is in this issue. Many of the word balloons. Um, the font is um, compressed, like the the kerning, which is the space between letters, and the leading, which is the space between lines. Um, in many word balloons, it's really cramped, and a line is almost touching the line above it or below it. There's a page or two where, like, the text is sort of too high up in a word balloon. There's a uh, there are a couple. Um, it's like we're back in the first four issues on on page six, uh, in in panel four. There is the letter I as a part of a word, which has serifs, but also on page 11 in panel two, there is there are both uses of the letter I within a word where it does or doesn't have a serif. And a lettering rule is that the letter I, if it's the word I, like I myself, has serifs. And if the letter I is in a word like inside or interrogate, then it doesn't have serifs. And... I had never seen uh, Tim Seeley, uh, excuse me, I've never seen um, Steve Seeley, right? Credited as a letterer in in comics? Uh, well, not, this... not in G.I. Joe up to this point. I think this is his first credit. Yeah, and this, this sort of looks to me like, uh, like, hey, can you use this computer program and type these things out and place these word balloons? Like, yes. Have you done a lot of computer lettering before? No. Well, good enough. Uh, the lettering in this issue is not good. And it's always hard to letter a comic if there's a lot of dialogue or too much dialogue. Um, but lettering is really design. Lettering is like placing word balloons and sizing everything and deciding how many words go per line so that a word balloon is a certain height and a certain width and it's pleasing. It isn't just like, don't cover the important art. Um, and there is a phenomenon which I see in comic book series where uh, a series is canceled and the final issue or two uh, is drawn by not the artist who was drawing it previously, but someone less exciting, less famous, and I think often less expensive because the publisher or the editor has sort of given up on the book. So might as well like bang out the final issues and, and not spend as much of the budget on the issue because sales usually fall for final issues when a series has been announced. Because if someone doesn't like a book, this is really their excuse to hop off. And uh, I'm, I'm being cynical here, but I feel like this may... I mean, the normal G.I. Joe reason would be deadline. Like, oh, we, we need someone to letter this. Hey, you. Um, and, and I do see from looking at the internet that there is an artist and a comic writer in Chicago named S Steve Seeley. Uh, and Devil's Due was in Chicago. And uh, so I think this is the same person. And, and, and I don't 
we you know we haven't seen this name on other devils do comics and i haven't seen this this name on other comics that i've read so i think this may be like oh do you want to try this out like oh this doesn't work for me or like oh sorry you didn't do the best job we're not going to have you back but um the lettering in this issue was uh was distracting no yeah i was um i noticed that uh steve seeley on comic vine he's credited on 101 issues so he's done uh, a lot of stuff but um mm-hmm. A fair few of those seem to be linked to Tim Seeley projects like Hackslash. So I assume that there is a familial connection, maybe a brother, uh, and and possibly, uh, you know, that that was how he got started through that. I mean, I must admit, I was looking at this this morning, and I've never noticed it before. Um, but yeah, um, page eight, Wilder Vaughan says, Cobra threat, that's something the world need worry about no longer, and it's weirdly up in the balloon. Generally, this sort of thing wouldn't bother me, but I noticed that this morning, and it just, it's messy. It just looks messy. I've read this so many times without noticing it until this morning. Um, So clearly, it's not ruined the issue for me, but um, there's a lot of places where it's not quite right. You're absolutely correct on that. I also want to, sort of going back to, to story and writing, there's this scene where, Scarlet is driving and Snake Eyes, it's a fun surprise that he's in the back of this SUV holding an M60. And uh, I sort of feel like we've established in G.I. Joe that only a big guy like Roadblock. Uh, oh, no. Did, did Snake Eyes have the M60 in the Vietnam yeah. flashbacks? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, ta- I take this back. What I'm really going to say about this scene. <laughs> you know, this, is, this, is, this was cool. I like this. You know, she's, uh, Scarlet's driving. There's some red shadows behind her. And uh, she says, Snake Eyes, you're up. And he surprises these two bad guys by popping up in the back and shooting at this helicopter that they're in. And then the helicopter crashes uh, onto this road. And uh, whoop, 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 we chuck a boom. And then the next page, it sort of doesn't look like it's on the road anymore. It sort of looks like it's at the beach or like sort of on a... <laughs> Sort of on a different mountain where um, there's like dirt and the red shadows are sort of running out of it to like chase to, to chase the SUV with Scarlet and Snake Eyes. And think about think about the end of the first Mission Impossible movie where Ethan Hunt, the Tom Cruise character, uh, is on a he's on a helicopter that goes into a, a a tunnel so he can jump on a train. And how that scene is all about. The danger, this narrow space, you know, like if you if you navigate wrong, getting into a tunnel, you crash. And here we are on like a mountain road with a helicopter chasing an SUV. And the helicopter lands as if it was going like five miles an hour. And I think of action comics, you know, ish, other issues of G.I. Joe or issues of like Nth Man or The Punisher or... Uh, other comic books where a writer and an artist working together, uh, I, I, I lay this at Brandon Jerwa's feet because there's no time for the scene to be a cool like action set piece. This is, this is, not, this is not me frowning at Tim Seeley. Uh, I think he drew what was in the script. But man, if a helicopter is chasing uh, an SUV and crashes, I want more. I want more speed and more slamming down and more sort of scraping and 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 you know like danger and even if the the three red shadows get out of it um i want more you know or like like uh you know then the nah 
this is it's just it's uh it's it's like the abbreviation of the scene it's like yep we took out that helicopter end scene but to be honest the more appalling the crash the more impact it would have that the red shadows just get out so yeah it actually would have helped that as well yeah and 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 that too hmm yeah, as a beat as well. It's like that. The, you know, the helicopter's down. It's in flames. That will be the end of them. And then, yeah, they've come out. Oh my gosh! Okay, and then, and this, this also, uh, maybe this is a question for our next episode, or maybe if Richard, having read ahead, can ever so lightly refer to the next issue without <laughs> spoiling it for me. Yeah, that's um, so. Uh, so they they run out, which I I don't understand because by that point the SUV would have really gotten away and created a lot more distance <laughs> between them. So again, this is like like Jura was not keeping track of the physical space of this scene, but like okay, sure, I guess the helicopter like skidded at speed and like maintained pace with um, the the SUV with Scarlet and Snake Eyes. So you turn the page and she says, "Snake Eyes, buy us some time," and she shoots them, and then they are like sort of still standing and Kamakura says, how are they still standing? Those were direct hits from an M60. So there's something going on with the red shadows where they're, um, where they heal or they're super strong or they have armor. And I don't think the rest of the issue refers to this. And I don't think in the previous issues when mysterious people have been um, killing Joe's and Cobra characters that this has been uh, referred to. So Yikes, I hope this gets wrapped up <laughs> in the next 40 pages of G.I. Joe comics. It is a fairly significant part of the next comic. I would at least say that. Okay. <laughs> cool. Not being forgotten about. Whether it's satisfactorily wrapped up is another issue, but I better not say anything. I mean, I, the only reason he captured up with the SUV, I think, is because the SUV is only got to go around the corner and it's Hawk's house. So clearly they've just about uh-huh. caught him by the time they get there. At least that's the explanation I'm going for. They've not got far to go. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I think. There have been times in in episodes of the Talking Joe podcast where I refer to uh, the action choreography of a scene as not being satisfying or not being uh, sort of kinetic enough. And sometimes I might refer, like I did here, to Mission Impossible. I might make a movie comparison, or sometimes I might say generally, like, this was handled better in other or different issues of G.I. Joe. And I just want to point out, if you're looking for an example of really good action choreography in comic books, um, a, a specific one would be uh, Punisher Annual Number 1. Uh, but it's the Volume 3 series. This is when Rick Remender was writing The Punisher. And Jason Pearson draws this story. The cover is Punisher fighting Spider-Man. And I will actually go out on a limb here and say any Jason Pearson comic book story his action his drawing and he's slightly cartooning when he draws faces and bodies his sense of like punching and speed and bodies and and vehicles and like crashing and like falling um it's really clear and it's really amped up uh and so that's when i have called like an action scene truncated or tepid in my mind i'm thinking why can't this look like a jason pearson action scene Okay, so there's my point. Very good. I was, uh, yeah, I was just trying to remember uh, that excellent helicopter sequence from Captain America. I think it was the first issue of Ed Brubaker. I was trying to lean over uh, and, and grab that. See, this is the advantage of not really being a major comics reader. 
I have nothing to which I can make a comparison so that this looks lesser, quite genuinely. When, when you've only read a few comics, I mean, a few Jeff Senior bits and bobs, um, I don't have anything to look at and think, oh, that's not as good as X. I think I'm lucky in that regard. <laughs> some other some other good Jason Pearson work, his two Body Bags miniseries and an X-Force annual. Stuff is really kinetic. So uh, here's another sequence. is the, the, the Jeff death of the jugglers, the reveal of Mars Herring. Red, red Herring. Yeah, when we saw last saw Mars Herring, I, I wondered whether that might be an allusion to Red Herring. So maybe you know it's pointing us in Red Herring, you know, pointing us in the wrong direction. Mars being the red planet, and uh, and red, you know, there's there's the red connection now becomes more obvious. It's a red Herring because he is a a red shadow. So uh, that that definitely works. But in that um, sequence, there's. In a in a gloopy green back to Katank, which we are all too familiar with, Tim from recent issues of <laughs> Larry Hammer. <laughs> um, there there is a what we I guess would think is the Serpentor body floating around, and when we kind of last saw that, I believe they kind of pointed to to um, hinted that perhaps uh, General Ray was going to be. Uh, serpent or that they're going to make use of him and then out of nowhere comes this charismatic ge- uh, general uh, but now we're back in in that lab there's a body floating around in the tank which they kind of point you know at least very strongly hint is serpent or and then um and then uh mars herring gets out a, a pickaxe and takes it to the to the tank to destroy it and then there's what looks like to be a counting down explosive as well so it's oh, weird. I didn't. I thought. I thought they were rescuing it. I thought they were gonna huh. like take the body out and like blow up the base behind them. Talked about oh. getting rid of loose ends. So serpent yeah, or potentially just, being one of yeah, those loose people, ends that is being got rid of. People can't have this clone. We're gonna take him with us. Huh. All right. Yeah. Yours. Yours makes more logical sense. And then if there's this question of General Ray and Serpentor and cloning Ray doesn't want to answer questions in the next scene or two about mm-hmm. who he is and where he comes from. And that he has, Lady J says, you have no past. He says, I can't talk about it. And then he and Duke hug. <laughs> uh, they, they don't, they don't hug. I, I, I find some of the, um, some of the conversation between the Joes in, in this issue uh, where people are sort of deciding that Ray is okay after all. I don't know. doesn't quite work for me. Yeah, there's a page of talking heads, which is a kind of a bit of a, a love-in. And then it sort of cuts to Della Eden saying, <laughs> and this is probably my favourite line of dialogue from the book, at least they're going to die with their bellies full of warm sentiment. So kind of observing that that uh, love-in. But there's a, there's a quite jarring bit of um, uh, just treatment of those dialogue balloons because panel one of of that uh, page has got a sort of like a little radio balloon. Let's check in with uh, Jay and Scarlett, shall we? Then there's Della Eden speaking on her mic. And then again, same radio balloon. She's talking to, to somebody. Not yet, they're not. Vaughn was clear in his orders, Della. Oh, so that's uh, that's Mars Herring talking to her. Um, but the first balloon in the exa- with exactly the same treatment is where she's listening in on that conversation. So it's a little bit... 
a little bit more confusing than than possibly it needs to be to to follow who's saying what. I'm going to I think my sort of wrap up thought for this is I'm fine with the plot of this issue, but the the script doesn't work for me. And I don't know if sort of I don't know if many writers could keep the same plot and simplify it so much so that you could fit it and make it work. But what I mean is the plot in and of itself isn't like a blinking red light for me. When it actually gets executed, I, I then it's 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 very clear to me that there isn't enough space for all this. And if you are thinking about writing comics, here's a an exercise you can try if you're sort of wondering if a page has too much dialogue. Turn to page 35 of this comic, Devil's Do, G.I. Joe 42. It's the page where there are four panels and Duke gets to say, I'm sorry. And Flint gets to say, I'm sorry. And Hawk says, I'm sorry. And Ray says, I'm sorry. And count the number of words on the whole page. And then go find two other comic books that you like. Maybe one's G.I. Joe, if you're listening to this podcast. And maybe one sort of any other comic book you like. And count the number of words on like any sort of random page. And sometimes like like this very specific exercise drives so clearly home just how much there is to read in this story. And since it's bearing the weight of a second to last issue, it's it's it really sticks out. I think I get to a page like that. And I think it's quite common as comic readers, a reader gets to a page like that. And there's that much dialogue that you kind of think, uh, there's a lot there. I, I might just gloss over it, you know, and get the gist. Yeah. It's it's a lot to take in. And, you know, like everyone's, uh, since I have referred to Avengers and X-Men comics in this episode, you know, I will say like, when I reread older issues of Uncanny X-Men, I only skim or skip the narration because it's very overdone and mm. it's not meant to be read like seven issues in a row in graphic novel form. That was written to be read one issue and then a whole month later, mm. another issue. And like you either forget or it's your first issue. And it's the dialogue that I'm more interested in and, and the plot and the character in, in a Claremont story. But I don't need to be like reminded like his name is Scott Summers. Her name is Jean Grey. Their love across the galaxy, like blah, blah, blah. I know. Uh, it's like, no, no, this is not the first, it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> so um, I uh, I think I'm also, I think I give this issue of G.I. Joe, uh, not a pass, but sort of a lighter, like, grumpy noise, because <laughs> because I I have sympathy for Jurawa that he thought he had longer, and Blaylock writes two issues with him recently, and then presumably delivers the bad news. Like we need to relaunch this book with a different writer. Um, and and I want to point out that after the final page on the Devil's Do News uh, page, there's a little blurb for the next issue of G.I. Joe after the final issue, which is going to uh, G.I. Joe re- the headline. G.I. Joe restarts with 25 cent issue to celebrate. Uh, the start of a brand new chapter, dun, 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 25 cents. Uh, Joe Casey, Stefano Caselli, and Sundar Raj lead our soldiers onto an all-new battlefield perfect for new readers without losing any of the rich history that's come before. And 
it often turns out you actually can't do both. It often turns out that that's just copy written by a copywriter. That if you have this new G.I. Joe series, the new writer, yeah, technically the rich history still counts and it's still there. But like, I bet you the first eight issues of the next series by Joe Casey does not refer to almost anything that happened in the Devil's Do run and refers to very little or anything that happened in the Larry Hama Marvel run. And so this is a publisher trying to have it both ways. And I don't say that cynically because maybe comic books need to do that, be accessible to new readers and also, you know, sort of keep older readers, established readers um, in mind. So I am, I have a lot of sympathy uh, for Brandon Jorwa here because it's no fun to be told you're canceled. It's no fun to be told you have uh, much less time than you think, uh, space than you think uh, to wrap up your story. It's the dream, though, isn't it, Tim? It's it, they they want to go right. All of the people currently reading the books, don't don't leave, don't leave. You're, you're gonna you're gonna keep on enjoying it when we relaunch it. And new people, it's gonna be super accessible and really good for you too. So uh, jump on board. Um, I would I would be interested. Uh, maybe we should put this at the beginning of our next episode. I would be interested to hear from our listeners on Facebook on our was what's the voice memo thing voicemail. Yeah, there's a voicemail uh, facility at the bottom of the talkingjoe.co.uk website. I would be interested to know from our listeners, when the Joe Casey book started, had you been reading the Devil's Due series and did this feel like a continuation? Did you stop reading because now you were disappointed Right. Like, well, I don't want to read the new one. That's like kind of starting over. Or did you come to the Joe Casey series having not read The Devil's Do? And if we could get a large enough sampling, I feel like we could make a a reasonable sort of mathematical uh, assumption of what the entire readership does. But, you know, (laughs) is this is this a jumping? Certainly this is a jumping on point for new readers because I jumped back on with Joe Casey. But, you know, for for a Mark or a Richard not not the version of you two that are like on podcasts and obsessed with G.I. Joe, but for the sort of normal versions of, of British G.I. Joe fans, American G.I. Joe fans like you guys. Not you two weirdos, the normal fans. Uh, we're, uh, no, I, I, I want to be on a podcast with weirdos. This was well. Um, but was anyone, who, how many of our listeners... Congratulations. Uh, how many of our listeners um, read issue 43 and then stopped? Hmm. Like, does this, does this, how much does this kind of thing uh, potentially backfire? I mean, it's obviously jumping ahead, but I will say, um, I wouldn't necessarily want to put it on your bet about how much continuity there is between the two series, but I don't want to spoilerize it. But the nearest I ever came to leaving Devil's Due was about the first year of America's Elite. Let's just put it that way. Mm. I persevered, but it was uh, not without its struggle, shall we say. Hmm. I remember my reaction was somewhat like, hey, I was enjoying that. <laughs> you know, why, 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 are you, why are you getting the new person? Yes. Uh, so before we wrap up with, with this issue, I think it's probably worth just pausing briefly on the main emotional beat. That's that sort of action sequence with Flint, um, Lady J and Della Arden at the end there's there's kind of you know tumultuous relationship flint and lady lady j in the very last panel lady j has had something a shard of metal or glass perhaps 
you know, stuck in her stomach and it looks like all is not well. Did that hit the right emotional beats for you guys? <laughs> I suspect I'm going to be um, somewhat out of sync with everybody else here because I, I like it when they... Um, do I want to spoil it? <laughs> I like it I, when I, they I, kill I or apparently kill Joe <laughs> because it's war and people die. And I, I, I think if you're going to kill... You know, we've killed a load of irrelevant characters in the last few weeks. If you're going to kill somebody, it needs to hurt and it needs to be somebody significant. And so I I, I really like this and I appreciate that's probably a minority opinion. If, if, if she's dead, uh, and I do think you generally shouldn't kill characters, uh, I do think this scene is well done. And there's an attempt earlier in the issue to give them some emotional space so that when this happens, they haven't shown up for the first time out of nowhere in a long time. You know, here's here's my nitpick, actually. Um, they're, they're not in costume. And it sort of doesn't look like Flint to me unless he's wearing his beret. And it sort of doesn't look like Flint to me unless he has his shirt and his ammo and his, you know, camo and... There's an episode of uh, the cartoon from 86 uh, from season two called Gray Hairs and Growing Pains. And it's really silly, uh, but it's still good where some of the Joes get turned old and some of the Joes get turned into kids. And I already couldn't tell who was who because in this episode, they're they're at a Cobra Run fitness club and they're all just in like workout clothes and they are not color matched to their uh, character costumes. So it's just some Caucasian guy with brown hair and like Scarlet. Like I definitely know who Scarlet is or, or Lady J, right? It's like, okay, she's got short brown hair. I know that's Lady J. And the bald white guy, that's gung-ho. But the other <laughs> ones, I don't know who it is because I need, it's like, well, if it's sci-fi, he's got that RoboCop helmet and a neon green jumpsuit. And if he's just wearing like blue pants and like a beige sweatshirt, I don't know who it is. And then you say, well, Tim, what about their voices? Like, well, Yeah. Anyway, um, there's that episode Flint's vacation as well, where he's on vacation and he's still wearing his beret, isn't he? Yeah. Also, in that episode, that's that's just one Joe in his civvies, so I definitely know that's Flint because Flint goes on vacation. They keep calling him Flint. <laughs> Flint's vacation. It's not like Flint's vacation has like seven other Joes in their civilian clothes. Uh, so uh, rather than like, I don't like this scene. Uh, don't kill Joes. Uh, I think this scene's okay. I think this scene, how about this? Um, I wish they were in costume. I think my, my, any problems I might have this scene are superseded by my, my other challenges with this storyline being overcrowded and wrapping up quickly. So if it's like, you've committed a cardinal sin in the Tim comics, uh, canon, like don't kill characters or like, it should be someone that I know better, like Destro or Cobra Commander who kills uh, Lady J, since there's already so much going on, it's like, yeah, sure, okay. I I like your use of the superseded word there because I feel like Lady J's death has got more heft here because it has been superseded, as in they have been seeding, uh, you know, the emotional beats <laughs> in a super way through the issue. So so the you know it has more heft when it happens. It hasn't you know it isn't just this extra bit that's been tacked on out of the blue where she's introduced on panel one and killed in panel two, there is, there is more 
um, you know, impact to it from the from the fact that she's you know a key character who has been playing a significant role throughout the last few issues and has been having these emotional scenes with her husband, but particularly in this issue. That's why I think them not being in costume actually works. I mean, the last page they call each other Alison and Dash, and they're not being Flint and Jay, and that's the whole thing about it. It actually goes back to the very, very first issue of The Devil's Due, where Flint calls Lady Jay and actually says, um, he calls her Alison, but then says, I'm calling you as Flint. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not been done in all the issues in between, but this is where they have this idea of the tension of what it would be like to have a married couple serving in a a unit like this and that tension I mean it would have been boring doing it every week but I quite like the idea that this is them being themselves but they are still in this appalling level of danger which is so why I quite like the fact that they're not <clears throat> they're not the you know regular agents in the regular situation where they would get killed he's just going for a drive they've had a domestic and then this happens so actually I think I really do think this works because they're not being Flint and Jay so, but that's just that's my a, take, yeah. No, that's good a good point, point. And, and, and very nicely done, tying this back to issue one. And then um, as we turn out, I, you know, I quite like it when things get over-emotional in G.I. Joe, <laughs> as, as we have seen with my protests about not worrying about people crying in the last few weeks, so I quite like this sort of thing. Uh, I did have a moment in this issue where early on where they're arguing, and I thought, is this is this scene going to get the Jay Cordray Award for <laughs> the Jay Cordray Tim Finn Award for like slightly unnecessary over emotional uh, female <laughs> female Joe in a Devil's Due scene? Um, there is something that we keep saying about this issue that I haven't properly uh, congratulated, which is this is a double sized comic book, and I it, it keeps seeming like a bad thing, you know, like. There's too much story even for this double-sized comic book. I love double-sized comic books. I love double-sized first issues, final issues, anniversary issues, second-to-last issues. What a treat. Definitely this was going to be four issues or four issues or, you know, Jerobo was going to do eight or 20 issues and Blaylock said, okay, the most I can give you is four issues worth, but we need we needed to end on this date. So let's do two double-sized final issues. And I think editors in comics have stopped making final double-sized final issues because that just makes sales go down even faster. Because if you don't like the series and its sales are slipping, you will definitely drop the book if the final issue is that much more expensive. Maybe in 2022, this is a little bit different with um, variant covers and like rarity because a final issue, if it's not selling a lot, you know, I can get the var- the rare, rare variant. Uh, and I'm not speaking of G.I. Joe 300, I mean in general. But I love the heft of a double-sized issue. Uh, I can't think of another series which had not only a double-sized final issue, but a double-sized second-to-last issue. So even though there's too much going on here, there is an attempt to give me, me the, the reader, you know, closure and, and, uh, and excitement. <laughs> I spy with my little eye. Shall we have a look at a few eye spies? Yeah. Richard, do you want to start? Did you spot anything? I really struggled with this one. Um, other than my, my obvious thing that I do think um, that Wilder Vaughan, despite everything, is meant to be Baron Ironblood. Um, I, there's a reference Hawk and Maya having a chat 
and they talk about a chase with an ice cream van and a pink Cadillac. Oh, yes. And I'm kind of thinking, is that something that I've missed? So it's more that I don't spy, because um, <laughs> I couldn't remember what on earth this is referring to. This is referring back to an early issue of G.I. Joe. I think it's round about that issue with um, Major Blood on the front cover. <sighs> Doesn't, the uh, well, there's, there's an ice cream... There's an ice cream truck in '93. Uh, obviously, gone completely over my head, and I'm just looking at these issues recently. Um, I while <laughs> while uh, while Mark's looking. Here we I, go. It's around about yeah. I think it's around about issue sixteen, seventeen that there's a, a sequence there. That uh, yeah, I'd have to go back and look to it for for sure. But I think it I think it's around about then that this sequence that they're talking about happens where. Uh, yeah, we've got a, an ice cream van. I mean, that was the only major thing I noticed as a sort of back reference. No good but, shout. Um... I could ice by an absence of Cobra. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and normally I'd be, you know, featuring, uh, sort of calling out all of the new characters and figures that we've got featured, uh, sort of, you know, relating back to the toy line. And, um, yeah, very, very little in the way of uh, G.I. Joe characters, Cobra characters uh, and vehicles. I've got two I spies that aren't really I spies on page 27. Uh, this two page spread of uh, all of the newscasters on the, the, the final panel on page 27, there is an African-American newscaster in a jacket and tie with short hair and a mustache. And I don't, I don't know who this is, but I feel like uh, Santa Lucia, uh, Santa Lucia is, is drawing a reference photo of someone he knows or, or a, a news person or an actor. Uh, yeah. And I, I feel like I'm seeing Richard Pryor, but mm. that might, that might be arbitrary. And now that I've said it, you like can't unsee it. So, and then my other sort of non, uh, I spy is, um, uh, spirit iron knife in his, uh, snake eyes cosplay costume on the cover. Uh, but in general, a couple of Joes on the cover who aren't in the issue shipwreck lifeline stalker gung ho. Who's the guy? Who's the guy sort of next to Flint? Grand Slam. Grand Slam. Thank you, Grand Slam. Right, because his costume becomes uh, dark gray in the Devil's Do Run. Mm, yeah, and I think this this the cover was sort of created as a one of these Joes will die type um, trails. So so hence the sort of scattering of characters. It is an appalling tease that cover. Quite honestly, I, I'm I'm sh- I'm fairly sure that there was probably some sort of promotion along that along those those lines. Well, we we well, we did see in a previous issue there were there was a bunch of rectangular headshots of Joe's. There was like an inside back cover in an issue or two ago, uh, yeah, which showed like a bunch of head and shoulders of Joe's and Cobras, and I think it did. I think it did say one of these one of these characters will die. Um, I actually, I, I I know we're in the middle of a of one of our uh, games, but I did have a question uh, about this issue, which I wasn't sure about. And uh, maybe I just didn't read it carefully since I already completely missed that Colton is in the flashback at the beginning. But anyway, on page 33, uh, it's it's right after Flint chases the assassin, right? And there's this action scene of like jumping down the, the fire escape uh, of this of this building. So we're back at Central Operations Center and we see all this computer equipment. And this is uh, this is before that page that I slammed for just being too much talking. So in the final panel, 
Ray is saying to these other three Joes, if the three of you would like some time to talk alone, I can start chasing paper on Della Eden. And then um, Duke Hawk Hawk says, I don't see any reason uh, why you should have to exclude yourself. And Ray has this body language, which is really good acting, but I feel like it's out of character for him and too much for the moment where he looks, he's got his hand like on the back of his head, uh, like he's nervous, you know, like, oh, I'm intruding. You guys are having a moment. I should get out of here. Mm-hmm. And his, his other hand is pointing as if pointing to the door. And I feel like this one line of dialogue is completely out of character for him. And maybe this is part of this overall thing where this issue, the story is rushing things. It's like Ray's been a hard ass, but now he's coming around to the Joes. And now the Joes are coming around to him. But I actually didn't quite understand from a writing perspective why Ray would offer to excuse himself. Like, do you, am I missing something? Other than it, I guess it gives the in for the, the next bit of dialogue where they all sort of say, you know, say that they've come around to, to him and, you know, don't worry, you're one of us kind of thing. Just to create an in for, for okay. that. It does yeah, seem yeah. out of character, but by saying... So what- so what you're saying is it's forced. Yeah. Okay. I think they're trying to get over the idea. Ray, he's almost too good for words, really, or now that's kind of the whole point. Even though he's been tough and nasty, he's only ever obeyed orders. And now that that's happened, he's just he's so nice. <laughs> so they can all have their lovely, warm love in, and it's only nasty, suspicious Lady J who's, uh, who's being horrid to him. Right. And then... All boys together. Typical woman. And then she gets her comeuppance for not believing wow. in Ray. <laughs> right? If you don't believe in Ray, you might not make it out of the story alive. Uh, did you have Did you have other uh, error detecteds or I spies? I had a final I spy, which was this this big guy Arter, and he, on his red shadow outfit, he's got a skull and crossbones, which is a callback to the original. Red Shadows. And I believe that I saw a quote from Brandon Jerwa somewhere saying that um, he had kind of planned for these Red Shadows to be very different to the original Red Shadows and what didn't want the Skull and Crossbones motif included, but that uh, Tim Seeley snuck it, snuck it in regardless. And staying on Arta, he says Tovarich to his, to, um, what's his face? That to not, Wilder. yeah, to not, um, to to not buy brown iron blood, to Van and, Wilder, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Gene Wilder, whatever he's called, and yeah, that obviously means comrade, and I know this because I read X Men comics uh, with Colossus in them, written by um, Chris Claremont, which which yeah means that we know that uh, Arta must be Russian. That. That was it for me. I had a kind of I spy slash error detected. It's a, it's, it's a bit of an unfair error detected because it's not an error per se, but it was a sort of thing that made me made me think, ooh, that, that doesn't feel right, which is uh, in that beginning sequence, the flashback with the origins of Van Wilder, that he, he talked about uh, that this is, yeah, Joe Colton narrating that he's talking about a UN sponsored strike team. And I thought, Oh, that doesn't sound right. UN forces are always deployed as peacekeeping forces. So, so kind of having an offensive strike team just didn't feel like it rang true to 
real world. Hmm. I might point out that Action Force were a UN-sponsored strike team. <laughs> okay. So, uh, mm. That's just uh, probably a complete coincidence. All right, you two Brits, I want you to fight. <laughs> let's yeah that's a good that is a good no prize counter argument um I'm, I'm glad you came back with that quote of the week 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 did we have any uh, favorite line of dialogues that we've not talked about before the dialogue is very functional there's so damn much of it i've searched through to find stuff now you've already mentioned one that i did like which was the belly full of warm sentiment. Other than that, there is a couple of lines that I do like, if you don't mind. Go on. Um, Deputy Medina's, I contacted MI5 again as per your request, and strangely enough, they still insist Wilderborn is dead. So unless you can prove he's either Jesus or a zombie, I don't think we have much of a case. I don't know, I just like that line. And uh, more later on, Flint has a line... Uh, Ray could have Elvis Presley in a plastic storage tub under his bunk, but if we don't have a need to know, even I'm smart enough to realise we can't do anything about it. Because that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give uh, Flint some uh, some colour before we put him through the emotional ringer. Mm-hmm. His last the issue. ever joke. Um, <laughs> let's. I didn't. I didn't have any. Uh, no, no lines uh, stood out at me, but I, I do like the two that Richard just picked. Yo, Joe, cola, not grape soda. It's yo, Joeage time. Do 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 do. Yeah, yo, Joeage. I'm almost a little bit scared. Let's let's start with with Richard, and then we can go to sending order. <laughs> I mean, I still like this. I, I still like this issue. Uh, you know, this is, what's that phrase? This is not your father's red shadows. But I do like the red shadows as they exist. Yes, it is massively overloaded. You will spend half your life trying to read through all the dialogue. But I will still give it a six. A six to me is a decent mark. This is not a this is not a, um, a J6 where it's quite bad because I still think there's a lot of excitement in here and I like the fact that it's attempting to do something different. The, the biggest problem with the Red Shadows is the waste of potential. Mm-hmm. But that's not the fault of this specific issue. This issue is downright strange, but my life is not worse off for reading it, so I'm still going to give it a reasonable six. That's a very reasonable commentary and score. Uh, and now, talking to the uh, unreasonable man, here's Tim Finn. <laughs> um, uh, four? It... Um... So much happens and there are emotional beats. And yet at the same time, it, it, um, it just sort of flies right past me. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause it, cause it is trying to do too much sort of not until the final page, the final two page, the, the second to last page where, uh, where Lady J kisses, uh, Flint and he's, he's really hurt. And I, and I thought, oh crap, she's about to get killed or something. Um, so f- four. But four, four with my sympathies. Good. And a bouquet of flowers. I think I'm going to go in the middle. Five. I, 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 I completely um, get what both of you are, are saying. It, for me, it just felt a little bit overloaded, a little bit too much on the dialogue heavy, a big bit of just you know, disappointment at, at the p- potential of what I think the Red Shadows could be, 
knowing my nostalgia for the action force brand so so that's about where i'm i am it's not necessarily yeah, not not a bad comic per se but um uh, so, yeah somewhat harder work than maybe it needed to that, that then i would have liked it to have been and uh and uh, with a tinge of dis- disappointment of what i would have liked the uh, return of the red shadows to be cool uh so uh that is us done with 42 we will be back with the next disavowed episode looking at the grand finale to uh, brandon jira's era on the gi joe regular monthly with issue 43 part two of the dawn of the red shadows another double sized issue Will it wrap everything up in a satisfying way? We shall find out then. And then over on the other side of the stream for Talking Joe, we cover the regular A Real American Heroes at, at issues written by Larry Hammer as they come out and more besides. Uh, we have also got a special guest interview coming up. Uh, which is related to the disavowed era. So keep an eye out for that one and uh, all sorts of uh, fun and games besides. Richard, have you got anything that you would like to plug? Unless anybody wants to see Victorian operetta in northeast England, no, I'm absolutely fine. Thank you. I think you've got your target audience right here. Oh, yeah. Uh, No, I was on Twitter, but then I got bored with it and so I left Twitter. Oh, right. That was a brief flash in the pan. I I noticed you on Twitter. (laughs) Well, lots of people arguing and I was getting dragged into it. I thought, oh, no, enough of this. So, uh, no, you can't find me unless you know where I live. (laughs) Very good. There we go. (laughs) Uh, Tim, where can people find you? Uh, Video essays on TV and film at our YouTube channel, Atomic Abe Productions my brick-and-mortar comic book store in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I write about G.I. Joe at arealamericanbook.com. Excellent. You can find out more about Talking Joe on the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. We have a Facebook group. We're on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, You can leave us a voice note. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash talkingjoe. A big thanks to all of our backers, who include Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, and Brian. They're all getting early access to episodes as well as exclusive content. Um, As a completely impartial uh, observer to that that little announcement there, Richard, uh, do you have any views on Talking Joe on Patreon? I like it. I'm not going to say any more than that. There, Um, there's Voice of Wisdom. So uh, that is us done, I think. Um, But remember, actually, uh, as someone who does uh, operettas uh, in the north of England, uh, if if, if you want to just warm up your vocal cords, Richard, uh, do you want to do uh, the the outro here? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that's us done. But remember... Nobody beats Hawking Joe, an international podcast. Ah, <laughs> oh dear. Laters.
Thank you. Oh, sorry. <laughs>